Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to New Books in Medicine, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dana Greenfield. Today, I'm speaking with anthropologist Jessica Hardin about her new book, Faith and the Pursuit of Health, Cardiometabolic Disorders in Samoa. Jessica received her PhD in anthropology from Brandeis University in 2014. Currently, she's an assistant professor of anthropology and sociology at Pacific University in Oregon. There, her work focuses on how the intersection of medicine and religion shapes lived experiences of chronic illnesses, such as diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. Her new book draws on over a year of in-depth fieldwork exploring emerging forms of Pentecostal Christianity and its response to living with and addressing metabolic disease in the Pacific Island nation of Samoa. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, the host of the channel, and today we're speaking with Jessica Hardin uh, about her new book called Faith and the Pursuit of Health, Cardiometabolic Disorders in Samoa. Welcome, Jessica Hardin, to the show. Thanks, Dana, for having me. I would like to begin uh, this conversation, as I do with all my conversations, with just a little a bit of background. But I was wondering if you could start by telling us how you became a medical anthropologist. Yeah, um, kind of by accident in some ways, uh, or maybe I became an anthropologist of Christianity by accident, more so than um, medical anthropology. Uh, when I started graduate school, it, it had been after traveling in um the Pacific Islands. I was working and living in New Zealand and had traveled to American Samoa and Samoa. And uh, at this time was really struck by the the kind of physical landscape differences due to the political differences between the American territory and the independent nation. And so that kind of my background in history and uh, post-colonial critique and theory uh, really kind of made this this particular place um, interesting to me. Um, and so I embarked on graduate school dissertation work and through my um, summer training in the Samoan language at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, um, I started doing pilot research and uh, talking to um, Samoans in Hawaii about um, diabetes and obesity in particular. Um, and I and this is kind of how I came to this project in particular is also how I became a medical anthropologist at the intersection of religion and medicine. Um, I kept getting these kind of really predictable um, rehearsal answers about health promotion, ones that are not unique to Samoans, but unique to are not unique to anyone, particularly anyone who's encountering any kind of obesity interventions um, that people need to eat less, exercise more, uh, was basically um, the standard answer. And I, I couldn't get very far in my interviews. They just kept kind of stopping before they ever started. And kind of by chance, I decided that I wanted to be in a kind of immersive language uh, environment. So I found a someone speaking church, and it was an Assemblies of God um, 
and I spent a great deal of time just, um, you know, as anthropologists do, hanging out. Uh, and when I started talking to people about their faith, issues about health started creeping up, issues about diabetes and diet management and how particular foods worked. Um, and so once I started kind of talking to people about obesity, diabetes, hypertension, health, um, through this lens, uh, people's stories just became expansive. Uh, so it, it was realizing that if I wanted to understand, for example, where I started, which was looking at diabetes and obesity in terms of structural violence, um, I needed to not access it from a kind of secular point of view, um, but I needed to access it through the churches, which is, you know, true of, of Samoa in particular, and in particular, the diaspora, but I think um, is probably widely applicable to other communities as well, that you kind of get different kinds of answers when your context changes. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit about where um, where your questions started from. I mean, you alluded to a little bit with speaking about colonialism and structural violence. And I'm wondering, where did you where did you start? Because often our, our questions in anthropology as the research process um is underway, they evolve, but I'm curious, like where, how the questions um, were first formulated for you. Yeah. So thinking about this different landscape between Samoa and independent nation and American Samoa and, and kind of the realities of being, uh, you know, an American struck by the food landscape and the kind of different fast food restaurants that were in these two different places and uh, the kind of availability in, in supermarkets and things like that. So coming out of it, coming at it from the original kind of outsider perspective um, and it feeding into um, a kind of critique or like an emerging idea at the time that, you know, fast food was the, the problem with obesity. Right. Um, and so then taking it from this kind of question of structural violence, right. So thinking about Paul Farmer's ideas about, um, communicable diseases as the result of enduring, um, structures of inequality and poverty that create risk for certain kinds of populations more than others, I was going to take that in the direction of diabetes. And, and people have now done this. Um, and, and when it, it started that way, and I was going to do a comparative project between these two different political landscapes. Um, but then the reality of being in these two places made the comparison quite quite difficult. Um, and, you know, ethnographers don't do comparison very very often. Um, they can do it well, but not very often. So um, from there, I decided to go to um, independent Samoa because the, um, the kind of fast food American influence is, is, or is less pronounced. Um, and at the time, that seemed like the caveat that I needed to step around to get deeper into the ways in which inequality shaped the distribution of disease. Um, and in particular, Samoa is kind of uh, com maybe complex in the context of um, the what we know about how health inequality shaped the distribution of disease, and and there is a deep epidemiological record in this, these particular islands um, tracking the ways in which obesity and diabetes rates rise as you move from independent Samoa to American Samoa to Hawaii to the mainland United States or Australia and New Zealand, right? And they rise the further you get from this original kind of space. Um, and that reflects the different political and economic landscapes. Um, but 
I, the context of Samoa is, is somewhat interesting because typically the kind of urban environment is where you see higher rates of um, diabetes and obesity. And certainly that is true in Samoa. Although um, because of the ways in which people are very mobile and move between the diaspora, between rural villages and the peri-urban village, the kind of discourse is shared across the kind of population around the risk for diabetes and obesity. Um, And it it, it sounds like also that and you're, I'm hearing this in what you're describing too. That you were, you're, tr- you were trying to sort of find your work and locate your work amidst all of this baggage, in a sense. Like I, and the fact that there's a lot of epidemiologic work and public health work that locates or even makes obesity and metabolic diseases synonymous with Samoa, um, and. And it was interesting to see you kind of find not necessarily just like a different narrative around those issues, but a more complex and maybe more complete picture of what um, obesity or fatness or food or health, how like what it looks like there and how it's lived and experienced there. And I think another interesting heritage that you were dealing with, and I'm, I feel like you probably get asked about a lot, is the the history of anthropology itself in Samoa. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you navigated being a contemporary anthropologist in a place that um, has such a, a, a lively history and memory in the history of anthropology, but also in, in like American popular ideas and Samoan popular ideas of anthropology. Great. Thank you. Um, I want to touch back on the last question about um, coming into this kind of complex, both scholarly and cultural and political context. My aim at the time was really to think beyond what we know in the kind of epidemiological research about changing diets and exercise, but to kind of provide that deeper context. And I would say that the ways in which ideas about these diseases have unfolded in Samoa is co-located with the research, right? Um, These are, these are small populations. uh, That's one thing. And also um, these are kind of deeply mobile populations and there is a lot of health promotion. So um, this kind of the ways in which research has shaped how we know and what we know uh, in the islands about these diseases is important to Samoans themselves, Samoans in leadership, um, in particular. Uh, and some of that is rooted in a deeper history of anthropology, as you say. Um, so, I mean, the kind of anecdotal answer is that uh, in American Samoa, this was more pronounced. I got it there more than uh, in independent Samoa. Um, I was kind of jokingly teased as the kind of the young Margaret Mead or the new Margaret Mead. And it was not a, a compliment. Uh, it was a kind of an indicator of uh, potentially uh, a distrustful, me being a distrustful person, right? So the kind of the memory of Margaret Mead um, looms large as someone who um, who either kind of misrepresented uh, people or took, right? This is like took culture and then put it on display into the global context. Um, and, and I think that that legacy shapes how many, many people I encountered 
thought about the epidemiological research that now feeds a kind of stereotypic narrative of um, obesity and Samoa. So like if you search any kind of top 10 fattest nations lists, right, these are um, Samoa is usually one of these. And there are often kind of deeply dehumanizing photos attached to these um, lists. So um, these kind of two research histories um, kind of shape uh, how many people interact with researchers. And Samoa is a place that is deeply researched. It is a place where researchers come in and out all the time. Um, and so that means that building trust is, is quite difficult and takes a, a long time. It makes me think of um, Linda Tewai-Smith's book about decolonizing methodologies, where she says, and this is not a direct quote, but like in the indigenous vocabulary, research is a kind of dirty word, right? Because it suggests unequal relationships of kind of taking information, taking bodily materials and kind of developing knowledge outside that isn't in any kind of control of the particular peoples through which it is rooted. Um, so it, it made me um, identify more as a social scientist, as a qualitative researcher, than um, an ethnographer or an anthropologist, um, because of the ways in which that kind of particular disciplinary history queued up um, very, very various forms of distrust. Yeah, and I think I I felt that as well. You and I met in American Samoa um, many years ago, as as also as I was a graduate student in anthropology at the same time, and I felt that tension and that discomfort for me was palpable. Um, I didn't end up continuing to work there, but you did, and I feel at the end of reading your book, I felt like you navigated those tensions really beautifully. And um, at the end, you just, I realize I'm jumping to the end of the book, but you describe this idea of just of radical listening. And I, I feel like the nuance and complexity of the stories you told around uh, that we'll get into in a moment around religion and Christianity and faith and the body um, were really a product of more radical listening and, and you didn't fall. I don't think you felt and fell into that trap that now contemporary anthropologists, like we're very wary of, of this sort of taking um, as research as taking, as opposed to um, listening. Um, and so I just want to congratulate you on that. Um, and uh, I want to get into the method. So in, in the book, you um, describe all the different locations in which you do your field work. And so I was wondering if you could, um, for our listeners, describe uh, what methods you used and, and where, uh, where you did those. I both like the idea of deep hanging out as the ethnographic method and also think it's it kind of undermines actually what you're doing. It's kind of a, a shorthand to talk about it. Um, so the the kind of the methods for this project began in my first summer between my first and second year of graduate school, which was language learning. Um, and, uh, and from there kind of language practice and then, you know, learning particular sets of vocabularies around um, medicine, health and the body in particular, and focusing my attention there. Um, and in the context of this 14 month set of field work, um, I, I, I spent my time between various places. So uh, I like to think about the kind of clinic-based participant observation that I did as my 
quote unquote day job, um, where I would leave my household, which is in a peri-urban village and get on the bus and ride to town every morning. And, um, work in a diabetes clinic alongside the lead nurse, um, kind of shadowing her more or less uh, through her daily interactions. Uh, And then sitting in on doctor-patient interactions and interviewing people in the waiting room, getting to know the nurses, and so informally interviewing. So a mixture of informal interview, participant observation and field notes, and um, formal semi-structured interviews with patients and then uh, recording of what like naturally occurring interactions um, through doctor patient interactions. All of this IRB consented um, in these clinical environments. And then also uh, interviewing people in the ministry of health, um, attending their public events, attending all kind of, there's a lot of national health promotion organizing. So kind of anywhere where people were talking about diabetes and obesity and hypertension or what someone, what in Samoa they call NCDs, um, as a way to understand the various kind of threads of ideas uh, about these disorders. And then coupled with that was my time in households and in churches. So, uh, you know, my day job included commuting with my adopted family um, back to home and participating in kind of making the daily meal, evening prayers, um, and whatever household activities needed to be accomplished. And then on the weekends, it was church all day, um, every day, more or less. Uh, And because I was involved in Pentecostal churches, the services were quite lengthy and multiple times a week. Um, So it, it, the ethnography for me rests in um, not just the kind of embeddedness in clinical and health promotion environments, but then also the embeddedness within households. And that provided kind of the extra contextual piece from which to understand um, the clinical language, um, the ways in which uh, public health is activated in a particularly Samoan way. Um, And it's, it's clear from your from your book, and also having been there, that the the Christian church or various kinds of Christian churches, I should say, um, are a really prominent part of the Samoan landscape, um, like socially as well as geographically. Like they're everywhere. Um, and I was wondering if you could just sketch briefly for us um, the the history of Christianity in the Samoan Islands and. Uh, and then specifically how you found yourself um, in the Pentecostal church. Samoa is often described as like a very successful, and quote, unquote, successful missionary case. Um, I, I can't tell you the exact dates, right, that missionaries first started coming to Samoa, but um, Samoa and Matai, who were titled political leaders of the family, were some of the first to convert. And with that came conversion of um, their families and their villages and the embedding of churches and pastors into village landscapes. So from the kind of very earliest times of missionaries, um, Samoans were making Christianity their own. And so um, kind of incorporating the church into existing political landscapes and uh, practices. And so one way in which that happens is through the ways in which, um, you know, um, gift giving is incorporated into almsgiving. Um, So in other kind of missionary contexts, it 
it is often seen as the opposite, right? That the Christian church comes in and, and kind of evaporates some of the culture. And certainly that, that was the case in Samoa. And there's lots of um, important work happening about uh, kind of thinking about indigenous um, ideas that exist separate from Christianity. Um, but churches as institutions were made into the likeness of village political institutions. And that is uh, true of the kind of main three churches in Samoa, which are the initial missionary churches, which are Congregational Methodist and um, Catholic. And until fairly recently, um, maybe as early as the 1950s were some of the first churches, and then there were kind of successive waves of other new churches. Um, and, And new churches, both things like Seventh-day Adventists count as part of this new church. So do um, Latter-day Saints. Um, these are both kind of new-er, right? Second wave missionaries. Even uh, in many cases, these are Samoan-based missionaries. Um, and then Pentecostal churches also come in. And, you know, it reflects what's happening around the world, the kind of history of the ways in which Pentecostal churches have flourished um, in various waves. So um, the landscape of churches is, is complicated in part because of the ways in which families and churches are deeply intertwined. Um, so to identify with a particular church is often to identify with the history of the family and that particular building or church, um, in particular. Um, so, and that just reflects the ways in which, you know, this particular way in which Christianity is deeply Samoan, um, in everyday life. Pentecostal churches, and, and um, deeply charismatic Pentecostal churches are predicated on an idea of uh, being born again or, or, or salvation. Uh, and with that comes uh, a, a kind of inherent challenge to the um, status quo of uh, churches that are embedded in kind of family um, identity, in part because those churches aren't, quote, aren't um, chosen. So the, the ideology is one of if you choose your your new church, that with that comes a kind of deeper sense of faith and connection to God. And, you know, historically, even not so recently, when Pentecostal churches entered village landscapes, there would be, um, you know, families would be banished or um, churches wouldn't be allowed to uh, enter village landscapes because the Matai control the land because it's still... Um, kind of community property. And today it's less of a a kind of everyday problem. Certainly there's still um, some tension between these churches, but um, today it it doesn't erupt in any kind of um, either social or violent kind of um, problems. Um, But, and I think this reflects the fact that membership is growing in these Pentecostal churches. So the the Samoan Bureau of Statistics does a, a census and each time they do it, the kind of mainline churches drop a little bit and the Pentecostals grow a little bit. This is kind of like in the weeds, um, but uh, it's important to think about the ways in which new churches, these Pentecostal churches provide really different ways of understanding the body choice Um and as a result, health. Um, so the reason I came to, it's not that mainline churches don't think about health in, in terms of their faiths. They certainly do. Prayer is like operative across all churches. It's the particular ways in which um, 
Pentecostalism activates um, certain forms of agency, right? The, the degree to which people feel authorized to act um, in particular ways that might be counter to family norms, church norms, or village norms. So it's the kind of the institutional space of, of allowing people to imagine new ways of new sociality, right? New ways of interacting with each other, with God, with their children, um, et cetera. Yeah. And I, I get the sense from the book that there is a way in which there is a choosing, um, whether like either by consciously choosing or almost by fate, like being elected almost, um, of the new churches or of the Pentecostal churches through, um, through a salvation metaphor or also like a, the born again process or metaphor in contradistinction to the old church and all that it represented. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, that was my sense at least, if you could talk a little bit about like what is the contrast or distinction that people are making when they go towards Pentecostalism and away from um the social orders and hierarchies and obligations of the old churches. So I think that part of it, you know, I'll talk first about what fits the kind of more global trends about why, um, what kind of practices allow people, what patterns kind of um, encourage people to position themselves against um, other things, and then what might make it particular in Samoa. And so the anthropology of Christianity has charted this out um, around the ways in which conversion practices and the kind of the act of doing a salvation prayer, um, and then the various kind of ritual practices that unfold every day. Uh, encourage people to reflect back right on the day before they were born again or their whole life um, as a time of uh, as a moment of rupture. And this is Joel Robbins's idea of uh, between the before and the after. And so this kind of this linguistic practices and body practices create this space for reflection back, right. And a turning towards that, which is, um, kind of seen as traditional or or obligation, and this is Webb Keen's idea as well that um, obligation is cannot kind of go along with ideas about freedom and choice. So, in order to stand in into this space of a, that Pentecostalism encouraged, which is it, is that you're choosing faith, you have an individual, authentic um, relationship with God, that that requires a certain kind of criticality onto. Um, onto obligation that comes from um, political institutions or kin-based organizations or just like everyday family life. Um, So those are some of the dynamics that you see repeated in various places. Um, In the context of of Samoa, um, what gets kind of threaded into this, and this is probably true other places too, is this awareness about inequalities um, and Im- embedded in Pentecostal kind of ideas about the ways in which money and wealth should flow um, is counter to the ways in which someone ideas about hierarchy and respect and power are organized. Um, and so what makes Pentecostal churches so kind of dangerous in this landscape is that they question the ways in which families 
organize their wealth to serve or give to either pastors or um, political leaders like Matai. And so they question these kind of roots of wealth and then have been drawing attention to um, the kind of growing wealth gap. Um, and this is not particular to Pentecostals, the kind of everyday, the Samo Observer, the newspaper has daily critiques about it. So it's a, a broader conversation about how is the distribution of um, kind of resources working, right? How is um, indigenous ideas about or practices of reciprocity and gift giving working for people? And and Pentecostals come in and they have a particular approach to cash um, and the ideas of this is like the prosperity Bible idea that um, kind of through faith, all things multiply, including wealth. Um, and so I think that that is a, a, a deeply uh, appealing idea because it suggests individual control over resources. Whether people actually kind of shift their exchange practices or gift giving is a different matter. Um, but certainly the kind of ideas and the language of it um, provides people some space to imagine using their resources differently. And how do they link that kind of narrative around wealth and prosperity um, to health practices? Yeah, so it comes in in different forms. Um, the way that I heard it most clearly was uh, a discussion about stress. And this is, it's interesting the ways in which discourses about stress get picked up in these different environments. Um, so to be stressed was to like not have enough to um, provide for your family and also to provide for one's obligations in the church or in the village or even in workplaces where are, are often there's a kind of a gathering of resources to celebrate various different things. So the stress comes from this rather constant feeling of not having enough. And what's remarkable is that even the most kind of elite people in Samoa feel this not having enough. Uh, and so um, this is thought to kind of cause various forms of um, stress, which is locate like co-located with diabetes and obesity. So if we can think about diabetes and obesity as, you know, historically been talked about as asymptomatic, at least in the beginning, stress becomes the way in which people locate the kind of predecessors to those conditions in the body, right? It's how they look back and say, oh, that's how, that's what was happening. Um, I was feeling really stressed and this kind of worked through my body, right? It kind of it ends up collapsing this distinction between the exterior world and the interior world between social life and individual choice. Um, and so it, it's, it, it socializes the risk as something that the environment is in self is in itself risky uh, and that people have to interact with it in certain ways that brings on that stress that then um, kind of eventually leads to something like weight gain or diabetes. Um, and then with hypertension, for example, it was often talked about, you'd have, if you have kind of problems with your family, um, you would feel the kind of the flush of um, anger and equate that with the flush of blood or, or um, hypertension, right? Uh, and the same thing with diabetes. So the way that it was talked about was kind of locating these um, 
disorders in the everyday ups and downs of the body, right, which follows a metabolic logic, but one that's mediated by social life and faith. Yeah, and you talked about using metabolism or understanding metabolism as a metaphor. Um, was that a word that was used by your interlocutor, interlocutors or were you um, kind of seeing these patterns of how they talked about the ebbs and flows of life and stress and disease as metabolic of sorts? Yeah, they did not use the language of metabolism. Um, but what you see is the logic of metabolism kind of... Uh, translated through everyday clinical life and then certainly health promotion, right? The, the, at the simplest level, this is the, the common sense nutritional idea or uh, that there's calories in and calories out uh, and that if you control one, you have a result. So this kind of popular idea of metabolism as a kind of scientific discourse that then has been taken up into the public sphere. And what I what I think is most interesting is perhaps that these Pentecostal ideas about faith didn't come about as the result of this idea about metabolism, but that metabolism and this idea about faith as uh, one, a thing that is controllable, but uh, unpredictable sometimes uh, and can change radically uh, depending on the context and the environment mirror each other in some ways that kind of the more you cultivate a faithful environment, the more you make faithful choices, the more your faith is going to, grow and be stable. And similarly, the more you um, control what you're eating and um, make the right healthy choices, the more you're going to have the stasis. So I think that there is a a kind of intersection in these logics um, that comes out in everyday life. Yeah. And it seemed to me that um, the way they talked about like these flows of faith or the way they delicately like talked about how things are up to God, but they're also up to you was a kind was a way to reconcile. Um, I don't, I don't know if you would agree with this, but like as a way to reconcile um, the sort of health promotional push for like individual responsibility and individual choices with um, a lack of control and then be like a wider view of faith. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about like that delicate dance between um, what's in your control and what's not in your control and then the individual and the collective in these settings? Yeah, I I do agree that um, there is this delicate dance of um, kind of saying that God is in control, but then also doubling down on the, but the individual ultimately is in control. And I think that the reason that is it's productive because there's never a kind of clear relationship and answer. It's always the dynamic between these two balances that, you know, I think I talk about a, a an older man who he, he was so emphatic that like a hundred percent healing is possible, meaning you can, um, you can heal your diabetes, for example, but diabetes and, and hypertension, et cetera, uh, in particular, pose some uh, questions for this idea of that healing is 100%. Um, so in, in terms of if you can think about disabilities or uh, various forms of you know, curable diseases, uh, when a person can stand up out of a wheelchair, and there's lots of kind of good research and analysis about why that moment happens, um, and then also the ways in which, you know, healing might co-occur with a communicable disease with other forms of treatment. But 
people know that diabetes never goes away. So what does that mean for healing, right? What happens when the daily environment includes a sickness that never goes away? Uh, and so I think that it, it is this kind of um, context of constant disease, but also healthfulness that creates these tensions for people about how they claim their healing. Because to claim your healing is to kind of exist, in, is to be a faithful Christian, while also reckoning with the fact that the individual must do something. So that is the kind of individualistic compulsion or, or kind of practice embedded in the Christian framework, but it's also uh, kind of a deeply uh, social practice. So that I think that tension is what makes this particular framework, Christianity, uh, uh, productive for people to work out the ambiguities that people feel every day around being in, in control of their, uh, you know, environment and then feeling like they're not. And that, you know, that mirrors the the research about what we know about these disorders, et cetera, uh, is that often these things are not, or most often these things are not in individual control. And it seems like this form of Pentecostalism um, resonates with living in that ambiguity. It, it just, it, it sort of allows them to, to move through it. And you, and you talk about it um and theorize the chronicity of chronic illness um, that it sort of relates to what we're talking about. And I'm wondering if you talk a little bit more about that. Um, so how does the chronicity and what does that mean to you of chronic illness relate to these projects of faith making and becoming Christian in this particular form of Pentecostalism? Yeah, this is something that medical anthropologists have recently brought to the fore and here that I'm thinking about Lenore Anderson and Carolyn Smith's Morris's book uh, about chronicity. So the way that that work kind of was a useful heuristic for thinking about is um, thinking about the ongoingness of illness as something that is potentially never going to be resolved um, in terms of a diagnosis, right? But it can be resolved in these other domains, but it, it persists. Um, and so that's, that's how I'm thinking about chronicity. Um, and why I think it's so neatly kind of uh, in, sutures in with Christian Pentecostal ideas about faith is that, um, you know, there, there is no moment when your faith is perfect. There's only salvation at the end um, of which navigating the ups and downs of everyday life is the practice of being um, a Christian, right? Is to be challenged, to be learning all the time. And um, chronicity similar, similarly brings up this idea of, of navigating through a lifetime um, conditions that never really go away. And I think w what's also important in terms of medical anthropology is, and the, the ways in which a lot of medical anthropology is predicated on the illness narrative idea, which is, you know, changed so much in terms of medical anthropology and its intersection with medicine, um, that people make sense of their illness through telling stories about it and that it creates certain forms of coherency. And I saw that. I think I have a whole chapter about creating that coherency around illness. Um, but that coherency isn't bound in one moment, right? It changes over a lifetime. And it changes in particular when you're not retrospectively looking back at an illness that now is um, perhaps resolved. Uh, so it's, it's a way to think about the, the more diachronic ways in which 
um, people create coherency over a lifetime. And I was wondering, how does the idea of being born again or like, or just born again in general relate to that? Yeah. How does born again relate to this kind of lifetime um, project? Yeah. So I think it, it is about in particular, so thinking about Pentecostal Christianity and the particular forms that were kind of involved in, in the churches that I was involved in um, means that like the, the world is an unpredictable place. Like there are invisible forces that are constantly potentially penetrating one's body, mind, spirit in some, in the similar ways in which, you know, metabolism imagines uh, a series of invisible processes that are sometimes out of one's control. So being born again gives you the tools from which to harness these invisible forces to become aware of them. And so these invisible forces I'm talking about are, are evil spirits and, um, ancestors, right? Uh, although they don't use the word ancestors. Um, so they'll, these practices around healing, around, um, deliverance, which is the kind of active removal of, um, invisible spirits is a way in which, um, the, the body is always vulnerable, um, as is the, the spirit, right? And these things are tied together. And so sometimes people will be struggling with an illness and then they go see a healer and then that healer will reveal that there's various other forms, spiritual causes um, of, for example, you know, um, a stroke. Uh, and so through this kind of co-locating of spiritual healing and the ways in which that spiritual healing might um, hinder other forms of what in medicine we we call you'd call self-care and then putting those two things together but it's not like once that's done it's done right the work is one of unfolding and for through a lifetime um and managing the body and the spirit uh and often this is about kind of creating forms of uh sociality that don't reintroduce problematic relationships um, or historical relationships that have been difficult for a person um, and I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier, um, which is agency, but you also, and that's a very, that's kind of a loaded term in social science in a lot of ways, but you also use the, the word freedom um, in, a, in a way that I thought was really interesting um, and like potentially on its surface counterintuitive. So, you know, you talk about um, how many of your informants described, well, I don't know if they use the word free itself, but something like freedom in being born again or in finding the Pentecostal church. Um, what, what was that about? <laughs> what did that mean to find freedom um, uh, inside of a church? Um, and if you could talk about um, some examples in particular, I know that uh, one of your informants, Mele, uh, was a prominent story there. Yeah, I, I struggled with this language of freedom um, because, it, you know, it's such a loaded term and increasingly theorized in, um, in anthropology. Um, and so here I'm using it as, uh, like, I'm not using it as an 
I'm both using it as an analytic and also a, um, and like an emic term, right. That people were using. So, um, Pentecostal discourses in the context of Samoa. So like everyday talk about why one converted or through conversion scripts. So when someone leads you through a, a born again, salvation prayer, uh, often the word freedom will come up, um, and, you know, in Samoan and in English, and, and those two things would have different kind of sets of connotations, but essentially um, kind of thinking about how when one is born again, that they are um, kind of creating true spiritual kin. And as a result, they are free of the obligations um, of previous lives, right? So like the your family, your church. Um, your office, for example, um, freedom, uh, gives you this language, at least it gives people some space to imagine making choices in different ways. And so I, I tell the story of Mele in part because it seems like, so not about health, what she's talking about. And she, uh, she was a, a particularly, uh, spirited, um, storyteller, I'm just trying to look up the story as we go. Um, let's see if I can read some of the script from her. So she's um, a pastor's wife, which in the context of Samoa means um, you have an, e- kind of an equal role, but a significant role in church management, as does the pastor, well, indicated by the fact that uh, the pastor's wife is called a falitua, um, as in not the pastor's wife, but has a distinct title and role uh, in and of itself. But remarkably, she worked. Um, and this is extraordinarily atypical. And she didn't have to work. She wasn't working for financial reasons. She was working because she liked to work. She liked her job. Um, and she was, um, they started this new church in a kind of um, a village that uh, was, is a kind of an offshoot of town. And it doesn't have any um, titles tied to the place. So in some ways, you could think about it as, is feeling kind of like a lawless place because there was no one rooted in the land who was really in charge. Um, and so people were coming to this area because they could buy land or because they were pushed out of the urban area because of rising costs, things like that. And so this is like a particularly vulnerable community. And when she got there, she remembers the kids being like having you know, skin infections and runny noses and rough clothes. And that's where she was most struck. Um, and, and then part of how she measures her success is the fact that, you know, now these kids come to church and she'd say like, they're happy and they have um, new fresh clothes on. And she's done some like health, what she calls health education in the village around things like skin infections and, and colds and flu. So for her, that work was, um, you know, lockstep with her work as her work as a nurse and a falitua or a pastor's wife were kind of one in the same. Um, and she, she was also kind of redirecting relationships. Um, so whereas a pastor's wife ordinarily connotes kind of deep respect, uh, in which case you wouldn't talk about day-to-day things in particular children wouldn't orient to this person as like a mother or an auntie, but instead as a respected figure. And she would instead 
um, oriented the children as her own children. And so I think I write about, there's a young girl, she recount, recounted, Mele recounted, complained about a boy saying, I'm not happy with the way he talks to me, the way he looks at me. And so with expressive cheekiness, Mele says, who, him? Why are you looking at her? And she's, you know, directing her gaze to an imagined boy. And so here she she mentions other churches. She says, basically the connotation here is that the boy, the boy and the girl were dating, and she says, you know, in other churches, they might look a blind eye, right? They might say, like, we don't allow youth to date, um, but then not pay attention. And so here she's countering herself as saying, in fact, we we say that, and we also practice it by, like, creating space for these kids to have um, kind of adults to guide them through these interpersonal relationships. So what's What's significant in the context of, of Samoa is that um, there there is a kind of alignment with the things that the kind of rules of operation of how a church should operate and then the day-to-day making of it. Um, and so this is just like one of these small examples of how she found that an expression of freedom, right? And that she was creating freedom for those kids. Um, So freedom here is like the alignment of, you know, individual subjective desire and then the social rules of the community that they should be aligned. Um, And that kind of public performance should align personal experience, which if you look at the social science of, um, or anthropology of Samoa, this is counter to what, um, what has been said about Samoan ideas about responsibility, individual action or subjectivity. And so here I'm thinking about Alessandra Durante's work, which kind of tracks the ways in which, and and Brad Shore talks about this too. He's another anthropologist working in this area. Um, The ways in which, you know, internal experience and desire does not automatically um, match um, behavior, right? Instead, um, everyday actions and behaviors are guided by roles. And so Pentecostal churches, when they ask for an alignment between um, kind of individual personal experience and desire, so the kids, for example, um, and external behavior, so that in that case, um, actually going to melee and not keeping it to oneself, um, it breaks that expectation that one should act kind of according to role, which in in the context of Samoa is is shaped by gender, um, kind of birth order, relationality to other people in the room, titles, age, et cetera. Um, And so in that disconnect between kind of individual subjective experience and how people are expected to act is where the discourse of freedom comes in. Because to be free, then, is to not act based on one's role, but instead to act based on how one person feels, um, which is kind of, um, I don't want to say radical, but kind of radical in this context. Yeah. And I, I also think it provides a really interesting and important nuance to uh, social science conversations around neoliberalism and freedom. Cause I, I, when I hear words freedom being used either as like an analytic itself or, um, like an, a, a piece of data, um, like a word that the, the, the people that you're studying actually use, um, I, I expect to just hear a critique that, oh, this is just, um, sort of neoliberalism imported or spreading. It's, uh, 
spreading its claws like through religion, like using religion potentially, especially like a um, a prosperity gospel, um, uh, just like using that kind of um, tool to just spread neoliberalism. But I feel like that really flattens our conversation about what uh, about like what we're actually seeing here and or even what neoliberalism it's not fair to neoliberalism either <laughs> uh, in some ways uh, so i thought that was it was a really interesting analysis um of what freedom is or could be i think you're you're right and that was kind of my effort to tack between um kind of freedom as an analytic and then freedom as a local idea or a someone idea and not that analytics aren't local because i think that's what comes out here is that that people are operationalizing freedom as a kind of active concept, a way of understanding from from a broader level relationality. So I think that they are operating with it as an analytic as well. And I think responsibility is also one of these that uh, that is kind of the go-to or has been the kind of formative analytic move has been that, well, you know, these health promotion discourses individualize risk and that's bad. Right. And instead, we see that uh, responsibility is kind of batted around. It's distributed. It's moved around. Um, and it's not one single thing. Yeah. And I think that that was another a beautiful move that, that you did as well. And that um, uh, like risk and freedom had their own unique expression here. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how people use this? particular expression of freedom with regards to health and health practices? Yeah. Okay. So I I talk about a number of stories. And so if you ask people about my interviews were often focused on when, when did you find out that you have diabetes or um, when did you feel that your weight started to become a, a problem or hypertension or kidney disease, right? They, they kind of are often, co-occurring and one in the felt to be one in the same in this context. Um, and the stories would, um, when they did coincide with conversion. And so I have a, a section in the book where I talk about these as embedded narratives or the ways in which people's stories of conversion kind of flipped the priority of, um, health when they, were co-occurring with health events. So someone would be admitted to a hospital, someone would be diagnosed with diabetes. And at the same time, what would be happening would be also conversion. So this kind of, this synergistic moment flips the action from, so if we think about kind of illness narratives as stories about um, how one got sick, how one moved through that sickness, um, by putting this Christian framework on it, and also the kind of discursive practices that come with um, conversion narratives in particular, there is a reorientation of illness into a Christian framework. And and with that comes a discussion of, well, with conversion, I became free. And then I also stopped um, eating this particular food. I also stopped going to this particular event, church event that was really stressful. I also started to see the doctor, Um, but it was never the primary. It was always secondary in relationship to um, the the experience of um, being born again. Yeah. And I think it was, there was a similar sort of subordination of everything to the born again narrative and experience with the location of risks 
um, like what was considered a risk. And I was wondering, you have a, a chap, your third chapter is called Discerning Ambiguous Risks. And um, you explore that a little bit there. And I was wondering if you could talk about like, how did um, both uh, people with chronic illnesses and also within the church and also physicians themselves locate risk? So I think there are some things that are particular to why understanding risk is, is difficult and somewhat. And then there are some things that I think might, might be more kind of globally spanning. Um, and I'm thinking about Marianne Nestle's, um, she says that in one of her books, she says basically that like everyone's really confused by nutrition. Um, there are good fats and bad fats. There's good things and bad things. We should cut this. We should cut that. Right. And, and that's a, a kind of broader, at least American based set of confusions. Um, and, in the context of Samoa, the question was uh, about discerning risk, particularly around obesity and eating or just fatness, was historically um, fatness, large body, um, would be associated with um, wellness, um, power, um, and good living, good life. Uh, and this has to do with the ways in which certain people were fed and made fat as representative of the whole, right? The individual becomes a kind of stand in for the collective. If we think about, um, chiefs or, uh, or titled political leaders or family leaders and, uh, pastors would become rotund as a representation of the fecundity of the land and various other things. But in the context now where, what does it mean to be fat? Does does being large still mean that one is well-fed and well-taken care of and healthy and strong? Or does it mean that um, people are hoarding or kind of selfishly consuming? Um, and so this is a kind of, it's almost like a, a, a daily set of interpretations around what is good fat and what is bad fat. Um, and the the way that I talk about it in my, the chapter on um, kind of talk about fat pastors is to say that um, this everyday work of interpretation is not based, it's based on some ideas about what are good foods and bad foods in terms of nutrition, but it's also based on understanding how people use their food and their resources. So if that person is understood to be kind of um, generous and, um, one who redistributes what has been given to him, usually him, but also her, um, then that fatness is strong. Um, but if that person is thought to kind of, um, receive the gifts of the people who are, um, serving that, that person in service here is, is one, uh, a kind of act of, uh, dignity and respect and love, um, to, and commitment to a broader collective, then it's, um, it's sickness, right? Um, so thinking about these daily choices, um, and the context of eating matters. Um, and, and physicians are kind of, uh, physicians and nurses are, uh, and public health practitioners are caught in all of this as well, right? They are no less located in the particular context than anyone else. Um, and you know, the example that strikes me most clearly is, uh, I talked to this, she's like a head nurse um, experienced in the field, uh, and, in, and, and considered respected and important in terms of the, the health landscape. She was also highly respected in her church and part of a women's group, right? Which most churches have, uh, and they were, the church was going to be hosting another 
pastor who was going to be visiting. And she was trying to um, introduce, make normal the more kind of health promotion ideas about what is good and healthy food. So she says, she tells the group, like, we should serve fruits and um, orange leaf tea and not um, kind of milky, sugary tea, for example. And she was like kind of laughed off by the rest of the women and dismissed. Uh, and they served um, corned beef sandwiches and milky sugary tea, because these are the foods that are appropriate for the status of the person. So even the people who are, you know, promoting these ideas embedded in these um, ideas about and practices of um, diabetes prevention, for example, still live in these contexts where these other notions about good food dominate. So how did they modify their, or did they modify their um, like health promotion, the sort of stock health, health promotion language that you encountered for the context? Was it just assumed that these were like two incoherent worlds that you had health promotion on the one hand that talked about just pretty, standard mainstream biomedical ideas and self-care practices on the one hand, and then you had the reality on the ground and that they'll never be able, they'll never translate. <laughs> um, or how, you know, what, what was, what do they think was a, was a reasonable, like practical way forward? A couple of things. Um, I guess that talking about more of this ambiguity of this middle ground of um, talking about Fa uh, Samoa, which is the Samoan way, which is like a highly um, coherent set of ideas about what constitutes Samoan culture and cultural distinctiveness, um, was both ambivalently a source of risk in terms of the eating, the example I just gave, but also a source of well-being in that it embedded people in certain kinds of social relationships. And, and theoretically, it ensures that everyone has um, food and is um, kind of taken care of. So it the, the kind of problem that I saw health practitioners facing was, how do you encourage people to eat differently while not critiquing what is fundamentally distinctive about Samoanness. Um, so uh, food is the kind of space where this um, gets mediated. Um, and, it, and it is uh, difficult, right? Because the sets of foods that people are, that the health promotion is trying to eradicate, you know, eradicate or remove from people's preferences are introduced foods that have become um, kind of highly stat, high status foods. And, and also just like, enjoyable, right? They sate desire. They feel good to eat corned beef, for example, or um, fatty chicken. So there, there is a kind of impossible situation of asking people to change what they eat in a way that also asks them to, to kind of go back to some time before these foods were here, right? And I think that that is... Um, you know, not desirable. These are foods of modernity. These are foods of belonging. Um, and to, to ask, promote these ideas is also to, to kind of demote um, certain forms of someone's sociality. And the way that I see it coming, I have a new paper coming out about this, uh, about health promotion um, videos, basically. And the one that I, I'm talking about is a, a, a Samoanized um 
version of uh, food categories. So the public health introduced this idea of mea aipa leni, which is uh, balanced food, um, as a way to incorporate things like fruits and vegetables into uh, normative ideas about what should what people should eat. And with that comes um, a kind of an extension of some of the logics about what makes um, indigenous foods good. So for example, taro is the, the kind of essential source for growing strong bodies, particularly um, for boys and babies. Uh, and in the, the video, the health promotion ad or spot, um, there's an effort to make avocado the thing that grows bodies and makes them strong. So there's a young man kind of using um, a, an amel, which is like a, a bar or like a long piece of wood that is attached to two baskets that you would carry on your shoulders as a, a weightlifting um, material. So there's a way in which the effort is to incorporate some of these indigenous logics about good foods into other foods um, that haven't had such a a widely important space in ideas about what is good food and bad food. Yeah. And it also, it also sounds like the, um, I imagine you'll talk about like the, 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 just the role of the resurgence of indigenous pride. And maybe even if there, I, I'm wondering if there's ever talk about like a time before like Western contact even. And I'm wondering what, if there's tension between that like desire for some time before colonial <laughs> colonialism and imperialism um, and also modernity and just like the current, just contemporary life uh, and, and desires that, and, and things that come with um, contemporary life, like processed foods or technologies, or just the fact that it's more, it's more complicated than just, there was a time before and we're going to go back to that. Yeah. I, this came up more closely in my more recent field work in 2017. I went to Samoa to do a comparative um, project uh, with colleagues at Arizona state university. So Alex Brewis, Amber Woodich and Cindy starts Streethen uh, and Sarah Trainer. We uh, developed this project to think about, and that, the work that this is derived from is, is the globalization of fat stigma. So even in fat positive places, there is evidence of growing fat stigma. And um, so we brought together, or I was brought into this team to dig more deeply into um, what is everyday fats, how is everyday, everyday fat stigma felt? Uh, and so I was in Samoa and my colleagues were in um, Paraguay and that was Amber Woodich and Cindy Sh- Streethen starts or start Streethen, excuse me, was in Japan, and Alex Brewis and Sarah Trainer were in rural Georgia. Um, and so these interviews were slightly different than my other interviews because they were not church bound. They were kind of more focused on working every working women in the urban area. And the stories that came there was this deep sense of nostalgia for a time when the environment was safe, when food was safe um, and when people didn't need cash. And so this isn't like pre-colonial or anything. It's like when, when people in their forties, fifties and sixties were kids um, Mm. and didn't live in the urban area. And there's one story that I found so striking because it it just shows how um, the, the changing food landscape is part of a different, bigger landscape of change. So she talked about being able to run around the village without shoes and not have to worry about being hurt by things like plastic or 
glass or trash, um, of being able to actually, you know, buy meat occasionally and it not be strangely large. Uh, and here she was thinking about, you know, the way that antibiotics kind of, or the fatty, the fatness of meat being not natural. Um, and also a time when you didn't eat processed foods every day, but you didn't yearn for them, right? You didn't feel like you were left out or you were hungering for something, right? You, she was satisfied. She has a child with, you know, eating taro or bananas, uh, and the occasional, um, meat or, or various fruits and vegetables that would be grown in the particular garden that, that her family had. Um, and so what I hear in these stories is that what is one of the primary kind of daily problems that people feel is this issue of cash, right. Of never having enough and then always feeling like you don't have enough, which translates into food and food choices. Hmm. So we're recording again right now. Um, and I'll just sit, just do three, two, one. So I wanted to ask you about um, applications of your work. And I, I feel like this is um, sometimes a dreaded question for certain cultural anthropologists about like how your work gets used, because I think we see value um, in producing these analyses. Um, and sometimes there's worry about misuse or um Anyway, I wanted to ask you about that because I, I, I could imagine that there are a lot of people in your site in uh, various parts of Samoa, especially on the health promotion end, who would be interested in seeing if they could use what you've learned. Um, and has that come up for you and how have you dealt with it? So I think um, there's a long history of um, anthropologists and also other social scientists developing interventions in the context of churches. So certainly amongst African-American communities and churches, and then also in New Zealand, uh, and there's current work by, I think, Ofa Dawes is doing some interventions based in churches. So this, this wasn't like a kind of, that isn't the particularly innovative thing that comes out of it because churches are community sites. Um, I think what can be hopefully a kind of useful thought uh, for practitioners and intervention design folks is that the church is more than a site. Um, it's a way of being and thinking in the world that may counter um, health promotion, knowledge and expectations, but um, that in that disconnection between perhaps what um, is desired in terms of behavior change and then what people are actually doing might be some space um, to learn about what could be effective um, to making sure that um, communities are healthy. Uh, and so I think at pragmatically, there's one easy thing to do, at least in the context of Samoa and maybe elsewhere, is to ask people about their religious practice. And I know that in the context also of limited time, uh, in primary care in particular, and then in other forms of care as well, that this can be unrealistic. So it can be kind of individually and community driven. But if, if everyday um, kind of encounters, a clinical encounters incorporated some sense of, are you religious? Um, and how does that shape, you know, what you do in your everyday life? Do you pray with people, uh, which we have all this good science about its impacts? Um, do you, um, 
engage in any kinds of social support groups that wouldn't be called social support groups, might be called Bible study. Do you fast? Um, and if you fast, how do you do it? Uh, and, and in Samoa, there was a resistance, at least to the, the doctors and the, the physicians that I talked to, um, about asking about religion because of this sense of like, well, that's their personal private choice and it's not my role to intervene. Um, but this, you know, has pragmatic impacts, uh, particularly around diabetes, um, and medication. So if you're, what you fast matters is medication included as a food is medication of food. Um, Rebecca Lester has a, a, a great paper about the ways in which, um, People with anorexia might resist medicine as a form of food. Fasting similarly positions um, some people who fast position medication as a food, which would impact, um, you know, their quote unquote control. So I think at it like an everyday level, uh, an everyday practice level, these kinds of open discussions matter. Um, and then also to think more deeply about what it means to incorporate certain forms of um, Christian logics into church-based intervention. So you're not just using the church as a site of delivery, but kind of drawing on the knowledge of uh, the pastoral teams to design, right? What could be informational items if it is a kind of knowledge-based campaign. Did you happen to encounter any physicians who weren't resistant um, to talking about faith? Yeah. Um, those who had an explicitly faith-based practice. Um, and there are a few doctors who do this where, um, their practice is designed. Um, they are practicing physicians, um, and they left perhaps more secular based, um, either hospital settings or, uh, clinical practice to join, um, to have their own practice in which case, um, maybe even through word of mouth or by the kind of naming of the practice would indicate its um, Christian orientation uh, and then could be incorporated into one's kind of healing plan uh, that would blend together medicine and other forms of spiritual healing. And even there's a, there was an exercise group, a Zumba group that was wildly popular uh in Samoa and uh their kind of tagline was come as you are um kind of referencing a biblical idea so with that came kind of people were opting in because it had this biblical undertone so I want to uh switch gears and start to wrap up and and uh return to the uh the questions that you're now pursuing. Um, so you started to talk a little bit about the new projects, um, the, inter- the collaborative work that you've been doing. Um, what kinds of new questions have spun out of this book project? So the my new project that I'm piloting right now is about diabetes-related amputations in particular and the progress from um, either things like neuropathy or a skin infection and the ways in which those uh, rapidly progress in the context of someone. And, you know, at the level of kind of anthropological theory, I'm thinking about the ways in which time is felt and, um, and made 
uh, in the body, which builds on this idea about embodied critique that like we know social inequalities by feeling them. And then we make sense of them through diagnostic categories often. Uh, and so trying to understand the ways in which um, different kinds of temporality shape people's experiences of um, health disease in the body and I think it also has a practical component that I'm like I want to draw out, which is to suggest that or to examine how different kinds of ideas about time and, and symptom progression impact the clinical encounter. So if physicians have ideas um, up based in kind of biomedical um, frameworks, right, science, uh, about how something sh should progress, what is the speed, what are the expectations that one should return, um, how often, and other kind of Samoan contextual and right, not all Samoans are the same. This will be located in various forms of positionality and about how long a disease should take if certain symptoms will lead to other symptoms. So I think at that level, trying to uh, understand the ways in which, you know, hegemonic ideas about time, shape, who is a good patient and a bad patient, um, and health outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about time and chronic illness in relation to uh, amputation as well, because um, especially in medicine, it and maybe for patients as well, it feels like an end point, um, like it's positioned as the, like the place you're going to, essentially, um, that also kind of haunts um, for practitioners, but probably also for a lot of patients, like haunts uh, living with a chronic illness like diabetes. Yeah. And I, I'm interested in that way in which the endpoint is positioned and morally positioned. And also, you know, in the everyday life of Samoa, the ways in which living without limbs is really challenging. I mean, it's challenging everywhere, but thinking about the particular ways in which Samoan houses and, and gardens and plantations and buses uh, operate, um, living without a limb can be um, not only difficult, but deeply shameful. Uh, and so I think that these are kind of invisible stories. And often, um, from what I understand, and I don't, I haven't, I haven't confirmed this, that um, people may die before an amputation even occurs. Um, so it might be one of these uh, more invisible ends of the extreme ends of, of living with chronic illness. Yeah. And also, you know, selfishly at reading your book, I, and speaking of like practical applications, I couldn't help but think about how this would change um, and influence my own practice as a pediatrician in training. Um, and I don't know if you got into some of the politics around like the child obesity epidemic, such as it's described. Um, and if you had any insights on how your work in thinking about the sociality and and embeddedness of these issues could impact how we think about children and impacting their lives. Yeah, this makes me think about, I didn't spend time with children or thinking about childhood obesity, um, but it, you know, it makes me think about the importance of uh, feeding as opposed to thinking about eating. Um, and the role in which feeding has in um, creating like material bonds between caretakers, right? Parents, aunties, uncles, grandparents, and children. Um, and that 
to constrain eating, you know, also constrains various ways in which people become attached and form loving connections, right? That are intercorporeal, right? They're between bodies through these foods that mediate between mother and child, you know, breast milk has this kind of first piece of it, but then other forms of, um, feeding as being the central operative as opposed to eating. It flips the framework from kind of individual choice and also perhaps in the parental role of individual control of the child to thinking about it as a dynamic between people. Um, I think that that is uh, something that I could imagine, you know, shaping how we advise and think about um, managing children's weight. I mean, even that word managing, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, so, it's so heavy. It is. Um, and actually it's a very, it's like such a commonplace term that we use constantly in medicine. Um, it's just, it's one of the words we throw around. We evaluate and we manage everything. Um, and I think that tells you a lot about our approach to, and our thoughts about how we can control the body <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and where the action is. Um, but that's a whole other conversation and <laughs> an entire another book. Um, but I, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, and I really enjoyed your work and I really look forward to seeing where it, it goes next. Um, and you said you, you have a paper that's coming out. What is it called and where can we find it? It's in, um, the Contemporary Pacific, uh, and I'm going to, all right, The Contemporary Pacific, it should be out in the next um, year. It's called um, Elemental Eating, Samoan Public Health and Valuation. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Jessica, um, and good luck on your next project. Thanks so much. It was a lovely to chat. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jessica Hardin. Again, her book is called Faith and the Pursuit of Health. Put out this year by Rutgers University Press. You can learn more about her and her work on her website, jessica-harden.com, or find her on Twitter at Jessica A. Harden. You can also follow our channel at New Books Med, or find me, your host, at Dana G. Field. Thanks for listening.